hello. Welcome to another edition of the PCOS Diva podcast. This is your host, Amy Medling. I'm a certified health coach, and I'm the founder of PCOS Diva. And I'm here today with one of my favorite guests. We've recorded a couple of podcasts, and uh, she agreed generously to, to come back on to the PCOS Diva podcast. I want to welcome Dr. Laura Bryden. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for having me again. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, well, it's it's wonderful to have you here, and I'm excited about the topic that we are going to be speaking about. But first, I just want to give you a little intro. You are a naturopath doctor with nearly 20 years' experience treating PCOS. You run a busy hormone clinic in Sydney, Australia, and you are the author of the popular book, Period Repair Manual, Natural Treatment for Better Hormones and Better Periods. And I have to tell you, my copy of my book is like dog-eared and looks um, like it's been really loved, and I've really enjoyed this book over the last year. I think you put it out in 2015. Yeah, early last year. It's been great. I refer to it as well. I've actually got it on my desk right now because I need to look something up. Yeah, and and I love the chapter on PCOS, which is really the topic of today's podcast. We're going to be talking about um, the four types of PCOS, kind of like four phenotypes that you've identified from 20 years of experience working with women with PCOS and um, kind of... uh, the, the treatments for each type. But before we get into that, I just want to let listeners know um, that if you enjoy Dr. Laura's uh, talk today as much as you know, I love talking to her, you're going to want to check out our two previous podcasts together. So podcast number seven, we talk about the risks of the pill for PCOS, and she gives some um, great alternatives for birth control um, if you're on the pill for birth control reasons as well. And then number 19, we talk about herbal supplements for treating PCOS, and, and uh, Lara takes us through you know, many of the different herbal remedies and you know, how to use those. So two great podcasts to listen to as well. Um, but why don't we kind of dive into the, the four types of PCOS that you've identified, and maybe you, you could give us a little background about kind of how you came to um, kind of putting those descriptions in your book. Yeah, okay. So what was apparent to me pretty early on in my practice, as you say, 20, 20 years ago, was that women who had been diagnosed, the women that were coming to me with a diagnosis of PCOS were not one group. You know, they were, they were meeting some of the same diagnostic criteria, but really I could see just from their general health and their health history that they'd come to that place from very different directions. And the way I see PCOS now is it's not one condition. It's a set of symptoms. It's a set of, you know, signs and symptoms, criteria. And it's kind of like the analogy I think of now is it's kind of like, you know, everyone, if, if it's, it, to see, to see everyone with PCOS as having the same condition would be like to see everyone who has a headache as having the same condition. I mean, as we know, headache is a symptom. Some people have it it's because of sinus, some people because of migraine or muscle tension. And so it just makes sense. You wouldn't, we don't treat everyone, everyone with a headache in the same way. And that's you know, how, I, how I see PCOS. I really try to get beneath the label, beneath the diagnosis, and look at what's actually going on. 
So I know when I was reading your book, it was kind of, I had this aha moment. Um, you know, my mother has PCOS, um, and, you know, gosh, now I have a little girl, and I wonder, you know, are those genes going to express themselves? And I feel like I may have been able to kind of turn off that expression if I if I had a better diet when I was a teen. Um I had a horrible diet, and I think that, you know, the gluten and the dairy and the inflammatory foods may have triggered those genes, and that's just my own personal, you know, thoughts. Um, And you have one of your, and we can kind of get into the different types, but one of your types is kind of an inflammatory um, PCOS. So maybe we could start there. Yeah, and I think you're right to, to say, I think you can with confidence, know for your own daughter, you know, if she grows up avoiding inflammatory foods and having sort of better knowledge around that area, she could definitely prevent the expression of the high androgen picture. So it is, I mean, it is true that some women just genetically um, tend to the, you know, the high androgen symptoms, but but certainly as as we know, as I know, I'm sure you know, with working with your own clients, that can be modified. So, yeah, the inflammatory one is often one that was kind of it's one of the the lesser common ones. The most common cause of PCOS or, or cause of androgen expression is insulin resistance, which we'll come back to later. But the inflammatory one's pretty common, and I see it in women that are, you know, showing other signs of inflammation, including you know t- what to me are you know clear signs of either gluten sensitivity or dairy sensitivity, and that may even be expressing as you know showing up as a positive gluten reading on blood test and they have other inflammatory symptoms like um, psoriasis or skin problems or chronic allergies or headaches, things like that. Mm. Yeah, and and that was something that I definitely dealt with was a lot of headaches um, when I was a a teen without really any... um, reason why so that's and and the joint pain too i had a lot of joint pain and i was an athlete and i kind of um felt like oh it's just because i'm over you know exercising but it's just it's so interesting to be able to kind of draw those um or make those connections now looking back um boy i i have I'm, i'm so happy that i have this knowledge that then i can you know share with my daughter um but maybe you can talk. You know, we, we, we've you've talked a little bit about um, the, what is the inflammatory PCOS. But do you, how do you want to approach this? Should we talk about the treatments for each type? Sure. Or? Yeah. L- okay. Yeah. Let's stay on the topic of inflammatory PCOS okay. and then talk about some of the treatments that I recommend. And just to clarify for your listeners as well, I mean, there certainly there is research that inflammatory cytokines, they're called, that's the inflammatory products that you can measure in the blood are elevated in, P- in PCOS sufferers compared to women without PCOS, but um, even there's one couple of research studies showing that um, the ovaries in PCOS have um, higher levels of inflammatory cytokines present. So, And, and I, I would argue that that's probably, you know, that's perhaps true to some degree for everyone who's come under the PCOS diagnosis umbrella, but it's, it seems to be more pronounced in certain women and, you know, that I've, in, in my cl- 
practice, a sort of a working diagnosis that I classify as having inflammatory PCOS. And the other thing that defines, for me, inflammatory PCOS is the absence of insulin resistance. So if insulin resistance is present, then that's the that's the type. That's sort of the focus. And I may also do anti-inflammatory things as well. But um, what we're talking about now is this, this inflammatory type is, is kind of where that's the key feature and there's no insulin resistance. And it's important because a lot of these women will be quite frustrated reading the information, what they're finding online. They're seeing, for example, they need to follow an insulin-lowering diet and low-carb diet, and that hasn't been working for them. And I would argue that's because insulin resistance is not the driving cause in their case. So they need to kind of shift their focus to something a bit different. Yeah, and I think that's why I had a, such a hard time getting a diagnosis. I wasn't diagnosed till I was 30 um, because I was, you know, I have that thin PCOS type, and I didn't have the, you know, I think maybe there's a low level of insulin resistance, but it certainly wasn't showing up on in labs, um, and I th- that's why I really think it's that your inflammatory type really um, hit home with me. Yeah. So. Going on, obviously, an anti-inflammatory diet yeah. is really important. Um, yeah. And I know I've... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, that and so that means avoiding inflammatory foods, some of the big ones, which is wheat, cows, cow, cow dairy, vegetable oils. Um, sugar is inflammatory as well. So that's, it's not like women with inflammatory PCOS don't have to... You know, I think anyone, well, really anyone with PCOS or really anyone benefits from cutting back on sugary foods. That That's not, you know, unique to the insulin-resistant PCOS. Mm. Yeah, and, and I um, discovered a really great food allergy test through my local uh, naturopath, and it looks at, I think, 132 different foods. Um, and my, hus- um, my husband just had it done, and we he found out that he was allergic to um, both baker's yeast and um, brewer's yeast, and that was causing a lot of inflammation. And removing that from his diet has really made an enormous difference in his health and um, the, the inflammation levels. So, you know, no, looking at the common ones like gluten and dairy, but even looking at possibly getting a food allergy panel done to see what other foods might be causing you problems, I think can be helpful. I agree. Yeah, is that the is that an IgG test? Is yeah, that it's yeah. Um, K, um, KBMO. Mm-hmm. I think is the company that does it. Um, so it's it's. it's oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's um. Yeah, I do order those sometimes. That you know, they're not perfect, and certainly there's people out there arguing, questioning. You know, the complete validity of that te- method of testing as a standalone testing, but I, I find it useful. I find it certainly with some of my patients, it's alerted us to things, as you say, other food sensitivities like eggs. Eggs is a common one that shows up on there yeah, eggs. Mm-hmm. that are driving, contributing to inflammation. Yeah. So, what kind of supplements or herbals do you recommend for inflammatory PCOS? Yeah, great question. And actually, one thing I'll just interject with here is another what I see in this this group of women with, with inflammatory PCOS, one thing on the blood test that I find quite useful is the positive thyroid antibodies. So that's a marker of autoimmune 
thyroid or you know autoimmunity that is that we know from the research is quite common with PCOS, and this is the group where I see it most commonly. So that's a you know marker that the immune system is not happy. It's a type of inflammation. It's a type of autoimmunity, and that improves very much from avoiding gluten products. So that's maybe a bit more specific type of testing your listeners could look at as well. Um, so does that mean that you have like full blown Hashimoto's? No, at that point, not necessarily. No, no. It, it's um, it's the presence of thyroid autoimmunity. Thyroid antibodies is associated with Hashimoto's, which is autoimmune thyroid disease. But the antibodies can be there, and yet the thyroid function itself is still holding, and there hasn't been much damage yet visible on ultrasound. So it's kind of a it's a, as you will, kind of like a milder version or a preclinical presentation of that. So, but it's still useful from a functional perspective, just to understand that there is some autoimmunity happening, and that that therefore almost always implies that there's some degree of intestinal permeability. Are your listeners familiar with that term? Is that something you've talked about before, leaky gut? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, actually, Dr. Fiona McCullough, I think, yeah. wrote a really great article on the site. Yeah, I'll reference that at the at the end of the podcast if people want to read it, read yeah. more about it. So that's probably a feature. That's what I find to be a feature in this inflammatory PCOS type is intestinal permeability. So that part of the treatment is to work at correcting that by avoiding the inflammatory foods. Um, some of the supplements that can help w- repair intestinal permeability is zinc. I love zinc. <laughs> I talk about it a lot in my book. Um, doing courses of probiotics, um, perhaps turmeric, and then another herbal medicine, which you and I spoke about last year in our podcast, is berberine, which actually is a helpful treatment for different types of PCOS. But it, it, it's helpful here because it, there's research that shows it's um, helpful for repairing leaky gut and reducing inflammation. And what do you think about fermented foods? Yeah, I think, well, certainly I use them. You know, I make my own sauerkraut and use that as a, a supportive measure. Just one caution, though, I found, if people are having a lot of fermented foods, they just need to be sure that, careful that they don't have histamine intolerance, which is quite common amongst women for different reasons. I have an article about histamine on my blog. And it can, it's, it's, um, it can sort of aggravate inflammatory symptoms. So if women are feeling, oh, having a lot of, fermented foods and not feeling that great, they might just want to kind of re- rethink that or at least rethink the amount that they're having. Okay. I'm going to have to point to that um, yeah. on, on, uh, under the podcast as well. Yeah. I'm going to have to read that article. Um, so anything else uh, mm-hmm. in terms of herbals or n- nutrients um, before we move to the next uh, type? I think we've covered the main ones. So I guess the other one would be potentially using selenium to modulate or regulate the immune system, and it's been shown to be helpful to reduce thyroid antibodies. So if antibodies are elevated, then that's something to look at, and vitamin D, which is a strong immune modulator. Yeah, and probably important for you know everyone with PCOS. Yeah, too, for, for different reasons, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. All right, well, all right, so what, which one should we tackle next? Well, let's talk about the insulin-resistant PCOS because okay. it is the most common. I think it's, you know, 70% of the population of PCOS falls under that category. And my take on it, you know, what I see in the research and what 
experts say is that it's a driving insulin resistance is a driving cause. So again, you know, someone that has a genetic susceptibility to high androgens, to this kind of response to insulin, once insulin resistance is established, that's what causes basically causes the ovaries to make too much testosterone and to not ovulate regularly. So it's a pretty important condition to correct. And it also um, plays into your your hunger hormones too. For sure. Um, yep. So maybe you could describe that process for listeners. Yep. So having chronically elevated insulin and as well as leptin, which usually goes hand in hand, creates mm-hmm. kind of a constant hunger <laughs> feeling, and certainly create makes it very difficult to lose weight. I just found an interesting sort of reference that really weight loss is not really possible until fasting insulin can come below eight. So that's a goal that I have with a lot of my patients is to work at sensitizing sensitizing the body to insulin so insulin will drop in the fasting state. Yeah, and I think a lot of women, too, have just, um, you know, a hard time, like you said, with the hunger where they feel like they're sort of, you know, have to compulsively eat. And it's like this vicious cycle and I think knowing that it's not your willpower yeah. <laughs> that's really at, at play yeah. um, can be really freeing, yeah. um, that just learning to, to be able to regulate your body chemistry is really what you need to be focusing on. I agree. No, that's the, the, that's the angle I take with my patients. It's not about willpower. It's about correcting m- metabolic function and being able to get to the place where you have sort of a more of a normal, you know, healthy hunger with your meals and then right. like a, a appetite subsides between meals. That's the normal appetite response. So if a woman um, believes that she, you know, the 70% of women with PCOS who have insulin resistance yep. and, and insulin PCOS yep. um, or insulin resistance PCOS, you know, let, why don't you give us some some tips on you know how we can uh, you know make the situation better? Okay, I think the number one thing is to completely, at least temporarily, completely avoid high fructose sugar products. This is what I found works. You know, this is the main, the strongest, one of the strongest interventions. Um, so I separate that out in my, you know, I separate high fructose foods from high-carbohydrate foods more generally. So some women may benefit from going a bit further and also, you know, I think, you know, reducing glucose starch foods like potatoes and rice and things like that. But I, 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 don't, like, I don't want them to do that until they've first removed desserts and fruit juice and dried fruits and, you know, all of the high-fructose foods because that's very damaging for insulin sensitivity. And actually, I have a new reference that I just tweeted a couple of days ago. We can link to that, that um, fructose impairs insulin sensitivity more than glucose. It's quite an interesting little, it's an animal study, but it's quite an interesting study. So what do you feel about fruit, like fresh fruits? Um, kind of stick with the low glycemic, um, yeah. kind of yeah. ber- berries and green yeah. apple, that kind of thing. Yeah, and... Yes, so certainly I think that in, for most people that can be fruit is is healthy and can be permitted, but it should not be it should never be a meal. That's one thing I say to my patients. They can have a bit of fruit as part of something else, but they should really be eating 
the three meals a day with, you know, protein and vegetables and as the core of it, and then a bit of fruit just for flavor, fresh fruit for flavor and enjoyment around that. Yeah, and that's, um, you know, I'll have a little fruit and um, berries in a smoothie or in the summertime, actually made a really delicious, um, it's in my summer meal plans, a mango um, mojito chicken. And I like to use fruits for sauces and sauces. Um, and I made like a mango sauce with mint and lime juice and fresh mango and a little green onion and blended that up in my blender and that was sort of like a dipping sauce for the grilled chicken so i like your approach with you know fruit is kind of part of to make the meal sweeter you know kind of cure your sweet tooth but have it with protein and maybe even a little fat absolutely yeah no that sounds delicious (laughs) (laughs) that was really yummy um so, so really getting rid of the fructose and the the simple starches. Um, yeah. You know, for those of women who are kind of on the sugar roller coaster, um, any tips on how to get off of that? Yeah. It's okay. It's easy to say, but it's hard to I do. I know. And for some people, it's a true addiction. And I, you know, I've seen that amongst my own patients. I, I'm very sympathetic to that. It's real. I know it's. You're right, it's very easy for us to sit here and say, oh, I just quit, but it's not always that easy in practice. So what I do, you know, the approach I take is to, I do give supplements to aid with insulin sensitivity, and that that itself improves sugar cravings. And I start emphasizing, you know, protein meals, especially protein breakfast, because that can really help. And then I guess the next step is to, you know, provide, make sure, you know, emotional support and getting enough sleep and, feeling ready to for the woman to for most people it's necessary to have a kind of a draw a line in the sand and say okay from this day you know for the month month of September I'm going to quit sugar I do I do think that's necessary for most people to it, it doesn't seem to work to just cut back because it, as long as you're having any concentrated fructose if you're you know if you're addicted to sugar and any amount of fructose will just you know, maintain that basically, pr- promote that. So, what most is, I hear this universally from my patients that once they actually stop having it, they stop craving it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, it's it's a physiological, um, you know, process. It's not it's not so much the willpower. No. Um, yeah. I talk about the freedom oh. from sugar cravings. You know, how what a relief that is. <laughs> It, it gets oh, it painful really for a few is. days to go through the quitting, but then after it's like you're in this totally new free space of wow, I don't even want it. You know, I, I'm happy, I'm satisfied with my meals. Yeah, early on in my journey, I found that I don't know if you've ever heard of Kathleen De Mason's. Um, she wrote the Sugar Addicts Recovery book. Yes, um, I, yes, I have. Yeah, yeah. Potatoes, potatoes, not Prozac was another one of her books. Okay. Um, but. She and she has a like an online community too, I think. Um, but uh, you know, you need you almost need to have a support network. You know, maybe a buddy that's doing this with you as yeah. well um, can be really helpful. So, um, what about supplements and herbals for this type of PCOS? Yeah, magnesium definitely is a mm. strong quencher of sugar cravings. It helps with insulin sensitivity. Um, inositol. Which I know you sort of you know work with with your clients, and I've been prescribing more and more myoinositol um, and lipoic acid, and also berberine. 
comes in here as well. So it actually helps with insulin sensitivity as well. Great. So should we move on to the next type? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So what's next? Post pill. <laughs> now. Okay. Yeah, this is a common. Actually, you mentioned uh, Fiona McCullough. I was just reviewing her book again this morning. Yeah, she talks about a tendency for you know PCOS to have this post pill lack of periods, amenorrhea, and it's certainly something I've seen. So you might have basically the scenario is you might have someone who maybe had a PCOS tendency, but you know the diet was pretty good, never really had problems until after they you know took the birth control pill and then tried to come off, and then they find that their um, the communication between their pituitary and their ovaries is is a lot more difficult to start that up <laughs> compared to other women. So this is yeah, I, I see this, and the, the way to def- that I define it is so this is um, amongst women that have been diagnosed with PCOS, but they're not insulin resistant. Doesn't seem to be a strong inflammatory picture. Their only thing is that they were fine before the pill, periods regular, no symptoms, and then when they stopped, you know, it, it, the symptoms emerged. So is there hope for these women? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is one of the simpler types because this is one I find responds quite well to the the herbal medicine combination peony and licorice, which I use with really all types of PCOS, but this is one where perhaps that's kind of all they need. (laughs) You know, they don't maybe need to do it. Maybe their diet's already pretty good and they can tweak it a little bit, but primarily they just need some help stimulating that communication between the pituitary and the ovaries as almost a standalone treatment, and I find that works quite well. So I think there's a lot of women, um, you know, they hear these uh, herbals and they go online and look to purchase them, you know, on Amazon or or wherever. Um, But I think that licorice and peony, it's it's something that, you know, you're not going to find online. I know Con Herbs has like a blend. But do you recommend that they work with a naturopath like that would create a tincture for them? Um, or do you think it's okay to kind of go kind of buy them over the counter? I think it's a herbal medicine that should be used thoughtfully. So I will say to your listeners, yes, I think it's ideally use it under the supervision of a herbalist or a naturopathic doctor. Or I guess the other thing to say is if they are going to use it on their own, which might, if they don't have someone locally to work with, I guess that might be necessary, is just to try to emphasize the message that I don't, it's not the kind of medicine that I give long term. You know, it's like I would say to someone, go on this and stay on this, you know, for years or even months. It's usually just kind of three to six months to take it temporarily and get things going. And it should work within that time. And if it hasn't, you know, improved things in that time, then perhaps it's not the right medicine. And a, a big caution around it is that licorice not just can, but it, it will raise blood pressure. It has quite a strong blood pressure effect on blood pressure. So for anyone who is already tending to high blood pressure, it's probably not a good choice. And then just for anyone else, just to kind of monitor their blood pressure, you know, over the month. And do you have to use it synergistically? Could you just use the peony if you had blood pressure issues? Yes, yeah. But they they do work. Okay. The research is that they work. There is a synergistic effect. Um, but yes, potentially that could be peony. Certainly, there are herbal formulas for promoting ovulation where peony is, is you know, used alone, or with, you know, in combination with other herbs. So I have to ask you about Vitex. Um, 
I know that there's some women that do really well on Vitex, um, you know, to help trigger cycles. And then there's others like me that it just it probably made my symptoms worse. So maybe you could address that. Yeah, I, I'm going to go so far as to say <laughs> that if for those women who, for whom, you know, Vitex worked well, I would say they probably didn't have true PCOS. That's my experience up to this point. I mean, a lot of women get given the label of PCOS. This is a podcast for another day, perhaps, that, um, for, for one thing, it cannot, PCOS cannot be diagnosed on ultrasound, by ultrasound. So if someone, there certainly are women out there who've been told they have PCOS, and I don't think that's really their hormonal, hormonal picture. They don't have the high androgens. They don't have the elevated LH. And they have other things going on. And for them, you know, Vitex could be great. Um, I think, but for the true PCOS when there's androgens and LH present, I have found it's usually not a very helpful herb because I found it can aggravate that picture. Mm. Yeah, I think that's important information to get out there because I think there's, um, and that's one of those herbals that people are, you know, Googling and searching and, and, you know, a lot of women are just sort of taking it on their own, not realizing that it could maybe do more harm than good. So yeah, that, that's it. Yeah, maybe we need to save that for another um, yeah, well, dive in a little bit deeper for another day. Yeah, whole podcast on that. <laughs> I know. Um, so, what would be the fourth type? Of yeah, well, the fourth type. I call it the fourth type, but really, it's just a you know <laughs> a mishmash of lots of other different things going on that have you know triggered that have pushed someone into the PCOS description and. I would actually, I would actually um, come back to the fourth type because I actually think there's a fifth type, which I blogged about later, in, in a post about androgen excess, which is adrenal. When there are people for whom adrenal androgen excess is the main picture, I think that's quite a different condition. So I think I, I see true PCOS as an, an, primarily an ovarian androgen production and you know failure. To ovulate regularly, and then there's this whole other picture where elevated DHEA, kind of the main adrenal hormone, is is the primary problem. And uh, there's just been a new kind of research study about that. That that's that's really I, it's a dif- it's a different condition, and it responds well to adrenal treatment. You know, either with low dose natural cortisol or you know looking at reducing stress and that kind of approach. So that's I guess a separate a separate one. Um, yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, I, I do think you're you're absolutely right about um, you know the PCOS. It's just kind of like this collect, collection of symptoms, yeah. and um, this whole initiative of changing the name. Um, I don't know if you've heard about that yeah. over in Australia. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it just doesn't seem like it's going to solve that that problem at all. <laughs> it's not. You're right. We needed multiple names. We need someone to kind of dissect it more officially and and create, I'd say there's probably two or three separate conditions that need separate names and a, a completely separate approach. So hopefully one day we'll get there. But in the meantime, women have to figure it out for themselves, you know, hopefully with the aid of, you know, some of the work I've done. Yeah, and I, and I love how you've um, kind of taken the time to share your clinical experience and, and um you know, talk about it and blog about it in your book so that people can kind of identify with these different types. And I know um, you had mentioned Dr. Fiona uh, McCullough. Yep. She has a 
book coming out. It's not available yet, um, but will be this fall. And she does something, um, you know, it's 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 a different outlook than than yep. yours, but um, you know, kind of similar work based on her clinical experience. So these kind of resources are just so valuable um, to you know to PCOS divas who want to um, you know take charge of their their health and realize that knowledge is power. So mm-hmm. you know, I, I if you're enjoying this conversation, I, I highly recommend that you pick up. Um, Dr. Bryden's period repair manual. You, you know, you, you're not going to regret it. Mm-hmm. So I guess we. So let's um, just close with that. That kind of that grouping um, of that fourth type because yeah. we we went through that yet. Yeah. So the fourth type would be I call it the hidden cause PCOS. So these are women whom I can see have you know some ovarian. They're still under the category of PCOS and some ovarian androgen production irregular periods, they've, they've got um, you know, hirsutism or androgen symptoms, and yet they don't meet any of the previous criteria. There's not, they're not insulin resistant, it didn't happen after the pill, it's like they're just really floundering. And so what I've identified, um, sort of listed in my book, is um, certainly thyroid disease can be part of this. So if there's an undiagnosed thyroid condition, I think that needs to be picked up, and that could be with a you know, the thyroid, it's a blood test for thyroid interpreted properly and perhaps looking right. at that extra thyroid antibodies test that I talked about before. Um, nutrient deficiency falls in here. So zinc deficiency, iodine deficiency, vitamin D deficiency, um, and then also, you know, the excess intake perhaps of too many soy products, too many artificial sweeteners. These, these can all impair proper ovarian function. And finally, this is a category where I see, you know, often sometimes women are trying to be too healthy. I guess they've been told they have PCOS so at some point early on in their journey, and then they just, in, you know, try to fix that. They cut out all carbs and, you know, have very strong willpower, and, and then there is something, it, it can happen that basically the lack of carbohydrate can shut down periods. And so I've, I've grouped, grouped that here, and I also have a post on my blog called Have You Lost Your Period to a Low-Carb Diet? So there's, oh, a, there's a sweet spot, right? You know, obviously some women do need to reduce carbs to get their periods back, but if some women maybe didn't need to do that and went too far and lost their period that way. Mm. Yeah, and I think um, it's so important to say there's really no one-size-fits-all approach to diet. And some women, like with severe insulin-resistant PCOS, might thrive on exactly. a very low carb, um, and I've always felt that I need some, um, car- like brown rice or some quinoa or something. So I, I guess the, the way I describe it is feeling grounded. I don't think I ever got to that point where I missed my period, but I needed to feel grounded with some grains or some root vegetables. Um, so it's so important to get in touch with how food makes you feel. Um, so that you can determine for yourself what diet is best for you, too. You are so right. No one, no one size fits all. <laughs> that is a very important take-home message. Yeah, and there's no one size fits all PCOS either, no. um, as you know you've been explaining to us. Um, so I guess um, for the the fourth type then you're you would be looking to supplement with the zinc and vitamin D and um 
get your thyroid and, and more than just your TSH checked yeah. for thyroid? Yeah, looking, we're trying to get TSH into an optimal range of what I would say is less than 2.5. That's for the TSH reading. It's about, what I say in my book, it's about looking deeper, doing some detective work. And unfortunately, your doctor may not be able or kind of willing to help you with all of that without some guidance. So one of the things I provide in my book is a um, questions for your doctor, how to speak to your doctor, just maybe asking for, for example, if you suspect that thyroid might be part of your picture, then you could say, you know, if it's true, say there was this thyroid, this autoimmune thyroid disease in my family, you know, my, and so therefore, do you think, doctor, would you think it's suitable to do a bit of extra testing around this? That kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. And you're saying, or say to the doctor, I'm vegetarian, and I've heard that vegetarians are often deficient in zinc. Do you think it would be appropriate to test me for zinc and B12 and iodine? And then phrased in that way, doctors are you know, cooperative. They they want the best thing for for you as well. Mm, uh, yeah, I think that's a really fantastic approach. Um, so, uh, Dr. Lara, if somebody wants to learn more about your work, and I know you have a a really fantastic blog that you, that is quite active. You know, you're you're um, updating that regularly. How can they find you? Yep. So I'm at Lara Bryden's Healthy Hormone Blog, which is just larabryden.com. And then they can find me at Lara Bryden on Twitter, on um, Instagram, and on Facebook. And, of course, my book, Period Repair Manual, which is available from Amazon, iTunes, you know, Kindle, Kobo, and all the usual places. Yeah, definitely pick up a copy. You um, you know, it's going to be a well-worn, well-loved book like it is on my shelf. <laughs> So thank you so much for joining us and would love to have you come back again sometime soon. Anytime. Thank you for having me, Amy. Well, thank you everyone for listening and I look forward to being with you again soon. Bye-bye.